Thanks for tuning in to the Revival Tabernacle Podcast. Wherever you may be listening from, we hope that this message encourages you in the unwavering, unconditional love of Jesus Christ. Join us as we reach sinners, raise believers, and release leaders. Please enjoy the message from the RT Pulpit. This year we're doing something a little, a little bit different. In between, uh, from one series to the next, we had just came out of our Core Strength series. And uh, we're going to be going into another series starting next Sunday, and I'm excited about that. But in between, throughout this entire year, in between these series, um, different members from our preaching and teaching team will be coming, and they're going to be pretty much preaching a series all year long. And so the series uh, entitled is going to be really the parables of Jesus, the parables of Jesus. And um, I'm excited because the first installment of that is going to be coming from our very own minister pastor shiana watson shiana is is such a blessing to the body of christ there she is there she go (laughs) she's such a blessing to the body of christ and uh we are blessed we are blessed as a church to have her a part of of what god is doing here she does an incredible work in the hiv and aids community with her uh with her day-to-day job but she finds ways to minister the gospel of Jesus Christ even to the people that she ministers to on a day-to-day basis. Can we, RT, give a very warm welcome. Give an RT welcome to one of our very own. Come on, let's stand and let's praise God for her as she comes. Minister Shiana Watson, as she comes to minister the word of God this morning. Come on, stretch your hands this way and say, God bless Minister Shiana. Come on, let's give God praise for her. Amen. God is an awesome God. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. You can take your seats. I looked up. I'm like, oh, that's so fancy. See, this is what happens when your husband's over in media ministry. You get your name and your picture up there. God is so good. He is such an awesome God. Well, I am just grateful to be before you this morning that Pastor Devin would entrust me to kind of kick off this series of the parables of Jesus. I'm also very grateful that my mother in love is here this morning sharing with us. So I I am just so in awe of her. I um, just always say that inspired to be like her. She's also um, very active in ministry, a pastor and a preacher in her own right. And I've just grown so much just um, being a part of her family and her ministry. Um, I just ask that you would keep um, our family in prayer, keep the Turner family lifted in prayer because my mother's in town because she lost her brother this week. And so we had the funeral just yesterday. So um, keep her lifted in prayer. Keep the Turner family lifted in prayer. Amen. Amen. So let us go before the throne of grace and get into the word of God. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. Hallelujah. This is truly a day that you have made. Hallelujah. And we rejoice and are glad in it, oh God. We thank you for your word that will go forth today. It's not by any of my ability, but it's by your anointing, dear Lord. I pray that your word goes forth with power, oh God, that our hearts are ready to receive, oh Lord, what you would have us to take away this day. Transform us with your word, dear God capture us in this moment and we pray that you are glorified in this moment you're glorified in this day you're glorified through every moment of our lives hallelujah be lifted up oh god because it's in your lifting oh lord that you draw every one of us closer to you we love you lord and we thank you in jesus name amen amen turn with me to luke 13 we'll be going 
through Luke 13, really highlighting verses 6 through 9, looking at the parable of the barren fig tree. So I'm not going to be before you long. I am just going to try my best to give some clarity to this parable since I'm the first one kicking off this parable uh, series. I hope to kind of lay a, a little bit of an understanding, a foundation of what parables are. So let's look at Luke 13, starting at the sixth verse, and I'm reading from the New American Standard Version. And he began telling this parable. A man had a fig tree which had been planted in his vineyard, and he came looking for fruit on it and did not find any. And he said to the vine keeper, Behold, for three years I have come looking for fruit on this fig tree without finding any. Cut it down. Why does it even use up the ground? And he answered and said to him, let it alone, sir, for this year too, until I dig around it and put it in fertilizer. And if it bears fruit next year, fine. But if not, cut it down. The parable of the barren fig tree. When Pastor Devin kind of gave me a list of all the different parables, I was looking through them, and we were talking even before he gave me the list that uh, we would kind of do this sharing of um, the parables of Jesus, I was telling him, I was like, there's a lot of parables that really don't make sense. <laughs> there's some parables that I just don't understand that are just odd, that are hard parables, that are just kind of difficult to grasp. And then there's some parables that are really familiar, like the parable of the prodigal son, right? The parable of reaping and sowing. Those things are kind of really familiar to us. And then, of course, I choose the parable that is hard. <laughs> I choose the parable that's a little bit odd, a parable that doesn't kind of fit the, the other ones that we preach and we hear um, shared often. And so um, I was looking at this parable. It is one of four that's in chapter 14, so 13, excuse me. So if you look at Luke 13, there's four parables. This parable is situated, separated from the other three. The other three, Jesus says back to back to back. But this parable is kind of situated right after he has a conversation with a group of folks about some tragedies that happen, and then right before he heals a woman on the Sabbath, and then he goes into the other parables. So it doesn't occur in any of the other gospels. And it's kind of separated from these other parables in that same chapter. It's really, really odd. So I, I hope that in our sharing today that it becomes a little less odd, becomes a little more clear, even if it doesn't quite answer everything. But hopefully that uh, it'll just have a little bit more of an understanding because parables aren't necessarily neat. They don't always have a clear ending. They don't really have sometimes a really precise um, uh, uh, end point. This parable is one of those. So I'm hoping that we kind of get a little bit clearer, even if some things are still a little bit fuzzy, but we hope to have some clarity today. So as I mentioned, I want to lay a foundation of what are parables, how do we study parables, and what does that uh, mean for us today? So kind of looking at our slides today, what are parables? When you look at that specific word, the literal meaning is that you're placing one thing beside another. The word parables are two separate Greek words kind of smushed together. One meaning to throw, one meaning to come alongside. And so you're throwing together one thing beside another. What Jesus is doing is that he's putting a story and then the meaning of the story right into each other. That's what a parable does. Parables are figurative language. Anyone remember like middle school, high school, English? 
learned about figurative language. I was an English teacher, so I'm all about the different parts of language and grammar. But figurative language are similes. What else? Metaphors, analogies, allegories. And so they're basically narrative tools that help people understand. Parables, they, they take the infinite and try to put it in finite language. Parables take earthly stories, things that are common to us, but they have heavenly meanings. And so parables are taking something that might be kind of familiar so that we have some sort of touch point, but they're wrapping the mysterious. They're wrapping heavenly things. They're wrapping infinite spiritual uh, uh, principles and tools, but they're putting it in a way that hopefully is somewhat accessible. If you can't grasp a concept, sometimes you can visualize an encounter. Parables are not necessarily unique to Jesus. The prophets spoke in parables. You see parables in the book of Isaiah. Ezekiel shared a lot of parables. Micah. But Jesus is just the master of all the parables. He just constantly, when he's out there doing ministry, when he's in the crowd, when he's with the disciples, he's wrapping the mystery of the kingdom of God with retelling and reimagining everyday cultural references so that people can get a better understanding. If you think about it, parables are kind of the original sermon illustration, right? That whenever you hear preachers say and kind of share, you know, something that happened in their day or happened in their lives, they're sharing a story that they saw online, sharing a story that was a family story. They're trying to illustrate, trying to get you to visualize something because sometimes just hearing it, it doesn't quite connect, so that's what parables are doing. Parables um, are also referenced as a language of events. That we might not understand spiritual concepts and ideas, but we can connect with events. And so sometimes it's difficult for me reading these parables because these events and cultural references aren't necessarily a part of our current culture. So kind of we have to figure out, well, then what does this all mean? So these narratives that instruct and guide the audience, they're instructing us in order to make a decision. Parables create possibility that didn't otherwise exist. And so now you have to react and adjust your life according to the event that was just presented. Sometimes parables have this sense of urgency that after you hear it, you hear Jesus say, go and do likewise because he's given you some sort of idea, some sort of event and encounter that now you have to take into account your own life and see, well, okay, now I have to adjust and figure out what, what do I do now that I have this new information, now that I see this in a different light. So how do we study the parables? I was um, going through a ton of different commentaries and a ton of different like references and, and biblical scholars who've written about the parables of Jesus. And a lot of them just kind of focus on the, the same two things, that when you're studying parables, you have to study the context. So what was the original meaning? What was going on at that time? So what was the audience? Well, where were they historically? And then also reflect. So you study what's happening then, and then you reflect on what could be the contemporary application. So I kept kind of seeing the same thing over and over again, that everybody, as soon as they approached the parable, said, okay, let's paint the picture of what was happening at that time, and then let's pivot and see what does that mean for us today. So looking at the text before us, we have to look at the context. And so I had an old preacher used to say, text without context is pretext. 
Basically, that means that if you're just plucking a text without looking at where that text is situated, you're making assumptions. And we don't want to make assumptions with these parables. We want to figure out what was going on. And there's honestly, there's a lot going on in Luke 13. And a lot of it doesn't quite make a, um, a lot of connection and, and sense to us in modern times. But hopefully it can maybe give us some clarity of why Jesus did this pivot. That he's having a conversation with people. He pivots to this parable, and then he heals the woman on the Sabbath, and then he shares some other parables uh, toward the end of that chapter. So what is our context? Let's go a few verses ahead of what the actual parable is. In chapter 13, verses 1 through 5, it says, Now on the same occasion, there were some present who reported to him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. And I'll explain what that means. And Jesus said to them, do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered this fate? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or do you suppose that those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them were worse culprits than all the men who live in Jerusalem? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Chapter 13 starts off with a conversation. Some people that were with Jesus notify him of a horrible act by Pilate. Pilate killed some Galileans while they were in the temple making their sacrifices to God. So that's what they mean when they're referencing that he mixed the blood with the sacrifices. So basically they were in the temple, they were making their sacrifices to God, and Pilate killed them. This atrocity is only mentioned in Luke. This specific slain isn't even accounted for in other historical texts, but you have this historian Josephus, which a lot of biblical scholars kind of reference to figure out what was happening in that time and looking at what accounts are mentioned in the Bible. Josephus talks a lot about how Pilate was torturing and killing Galileans because they were a perceived threat to his kingdom. So the motivation for bringing up this horrible incident really isn't unclear. Did they bring this up to Jesus hoping that this Messiah would get riled up about Pilate? Because everyone was talking about the Messiah. He's going to build his kingdom. Let's tell him what's going on with Pilate and what he's doing with the Galileans. Maybe he'll lead a revolution. Did they bring this up because they thought the Galileans did something wrong in order to have the slain come upon themselves? Because a lot of people figured that if a tragedy happened, you must have did something wrong. We have a whole book of Job <laughs> that shows us that people perceive that if something went wrong in your life, you brought it upon you because of something that you did. Job argued back and forth with his friends, even his wife, trying to figure out, I, I don't know why all this is happening. And so we're not quite clear why did the people around Jesus, and this part of Luke is called the journey, the traveling. So he's traveling. So he's with a group of people, not just the disciples, that's traveling along the way that kind of hear that Jesus coming into town to say, hey, 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 did you hear about this slaying of the Galileans? Why did they bring it up? We're not necessarily uh, clear on why it happened. But all we know is that Jesus' response is pretty clear. He says, I'm not going to rationalize or spiritualize their death. They weren't worse sinners than any of you. And so instead of focusing on the why they died and what happened, we have to recognize that life is short. He said, repent, because likewise, you have to, you're going to perish too. 
So I'm not going to try and spiritualize and, and give some extra deep meaning. I'm not going to try and lead a revolution against Pilate. I don't know why this happened, but all I'm going to tell you is that life is short. They were no greater sinners than you. And so then he also brings up another context. He's like, you're telling me about the Galileans, but what about the Jerusalemites? So if you look at uh, um, and, and verse... This is in verse 4. It says, do you suppose the 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed were worse culprits than all the men who live in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. He was like, there's 18 Jerusalemites who died when this tower fell. This was an accident. This was just a run-of-the-mill thing that happened, that when this infrastructure crumbled, 18 people died. Did they die because they were sinners? He was like, no. Things happen. And a lot of times when things happen, we try to give meaning to it. And Jesus like, at this point, it's not about what happened and the why it happened. Just recognize that your life is short. We recognize that God is sovereign. We talked about the sovereignty of God this morning, right? He's king of kings. He's Lord of lords. He reigns forever. He's a sovereign God. And in his sovereignty, he's given us free will. And in his sovereignty, there are things that happen in this earth, right, that, that happens as a part of his permissive will. And so Jesus, like, in God's divine prerogative, providence, and in his sovereignty, things will happen. Recognize that your life is short. He said they didn't die because they were horrible people. They didn't die because they were sinners. They didn't die because of some other spiritual thing. But life is finite. Repent while you can. He says it twice. Repent or perish. Repent or perish. And then he says a parable. Right? He has this difficult conversation. And then he goes into this parable. He transitions from reacting to current events to a parable. Creating, again, possibilities that didn't exist in order to elicit a response. Maybe he could tell that they weren't quite understanding him when he said, repent or perish. He says it twice in verse 3 and verse 5. And maybe because he, they didn't quite get what he was saying, he says, well, maybe if I put it in a parable, you'll get it. So he transitions and he says this parable, and, and many people kind of call this a parable of repentance. They call it a parable of timely reform. Others have... Um, of, they, they've described this parable as a parable of judgment, a parable of rebuke. What is going on in this parable? He has this conversation about tragedy, says life is short, repent or perish, and then he goes to a parable. So maybe as they are, he was saying these things and responding, people didn't get it. So he's like, well, let me illustrate it. Hopefully they can respond based on this illustration. So let's look at the parable. So we've kind of looked at the context. Let's look at the parable, and then we'll kind of see what this means for us. In this parable, looking at verse 6, a man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard. This was common practice, planting figs amongst the vineyard because of the soil and the, and the richness of, of whatever um, is planted with vineyards. It also has the high propensity of, of growing and producing more being planted next to vineyards because the vineyard takes a lot of time and care um, for it to uh, produce good fruit. And so planting a fig tree with them is a great idea. So he planted this fig tree in the middle of the vineyard. Fig trees are familiar fruit. So again, parables are all about familiarity to the audience. And so he's using this fig tree that a lot of people would understand. Fig tree, 
first fruit ever mentioned in the Bible, the first fruit tree ever mentioned in the Bible. This is a fruit that was used um, for medicine. Their leaves were used for baskets. So this is something that they could have a touch point and refer back to. This fig tree was planted amongst the vineyard. The owner for the fig tree looks for fruit, finds nothing. Doesn't even mention if he finds leaves. There's other accounts in the gospel of Jesus um, having an encounter with a fig tree, but he sees leaves on it, but no fruit. This is not even happening. No leaves, nothing. Barren, kind of looking like how most of our trees look now. (laughs) Just leaves just gone. Nothing's on this fig tree. And he, he says he goes for three years straight. And so when I was looking at how often a fig tree would bear fruit, they said a fig tree would bear fruit multiple times of the year because depending upon when you harvest the fruit, the fruit was used for different things. So not only did he go three years straight, he probably went multiple times in each year looking for fruit. So he goes to the vine dresser, the gardener, the one who's supposed to be taking care of it. It says, behold, for three years, I come looking for fruit on this fig tree without finding any, cut it down. Why does it even use up the ground? Why is it exhausting the resources of the soil? It's taking water, it's taking nutrients, it's taking minerals, but nothing comes out of it. The logical conclusion is to cut it down. I understand this because I'm horrible about taking care of plants. (laughs) At my job, they're constantly buying me plants because we're, you know, just in cubicles and I have one little window and they bought me a plant when I was first hired. Pete, the plant lasted all of four months. Then I just went in and threw it out. Then I had another plant that gave me, it was supposed to have produced like these really cute flowers. No flowers came up. I've been there for two years. Petunia had to go. If it's not producing, okay, I get it. Cut it down. He gave it three years. Multiple times during each of those years, he's looking for fruit, doesn't see any, and says, cut it down. The vine dresser doesn't disagree. He doesn't object, but he gives an alternative. He says, let it alone, sir, for this year too, until I dig around it, put it in fertilizer, And if it bears fruit next year, fine. But if not, cut it down. The vine dresser asks for more time. Give it another year. Why would he give the tree another year to produce when for three years it hasn't produced anything? So the likelihood of it bearing fruit another year seems futile. It seems like the likelihood it's going to bear fruit another year seems pretty low. So to give it another year and give it some more time seems like a waste of time, right? But tell someone God doesn't waste his time. The vine dresser is asking more time. He's appealing for grace. And I've preached about grace before. A lot of times we see grace as passive, but grace is not passive. Grace is actively doing something in our lives. This is not another year of let's watch and wait and see if something happens. The vine dresser isn't sitting back and waiting until it's time to harvest, but he says, let me dig around it. Put it in fertilizer. Help it grow. And if it bears fruit next year, good. If not, cut it down. The parable reveals God's judgment. And in the brief time of living things, yes, it will get cut down and it will come to an end just like the Galileans, right? 
just like the Jerusalemites. The Galileans died because of human malice. They died because of a tragedy. Jerusalemites, they died because of a happenstance infrastructure falling. But this victory, it'll die because of inactivity. So let's give it a year of grace and let's be active in, in hoping that it'll produce something. And I, I'm going to transition to, to what it means for us today in just a minute and, and, and we'll get ready to close. But what is this extra year for? Because in all rationality, if I gave you three years and in each year you had multiple seasons to produce and nothing happened, another year means what? Vine dresser says, we need this year so I can dig around it. We need this year so I can put some fertilizer on it. So what did that mean to the audience at that time? The message of the barren fig tree for them, they, they heard about the Galileans, they heard about the Jerusalemites, and now they hear this parable. It says, there's a sense of urgency. Yes, you have more time, but repent or pish. Galileans were caught up in tragedy and, and, and Pilate's torture in his reign of terror. Jerusalemites, they, they died because of happenstance, but don't die because of inactivity. Repent or perish. You didn't understand it with the Galileans. You didn't understand it with the Jerusalemites. Maybe if I put it in this parable, you'll understand this sense of urgency. You have three years. You don't have much time left. Repent or change. Change the course of action. That's basically what repent means. Yet wrapped in this parable, looking at what this means to us today. So those in the original audience would hear this and say, oh, we have to do something. What does this mean for us today? Do we have that same reaction? I think wrapped in this parable of repentance is also a parable of mercy. Hallelujah. You have time to change. So yes, for a while you may not have produced anything, but you have this year. Yes, the, the, the point of the parable is all about repentance. It says, turn away from the course of action that ultimately leads to destruction. That's what repentance means. It literally means a turning, that you're turning away from something that will lead you to a road of destruction. You're turning away from something that does you no good. You're turning away from things that aren't of God, and you're turning toward those things that are of God that will lead to you producing fruit. And you have time to make that turn. And it says, what, what does this course of action look like? When he's saying to repent, what does that mean? And I think that means something different for everyone. I think we try to kind of label and pinpoint what does repentance mean. And hearing the word repent sometimes can feel um, really convicting, right? But what you might need to repent from is going to look different from what others. Think about what toxic behavior have you done? What is hindering you from producing fruit? What self-sabotage, what negativity are you entertaining that keeps you from fully achieving what you are destined to be or have? That is the turning for us today. That, that is the, 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 the changing and the course of action. And in this parable, we have the three years, we have the sense of urgency, but we also have this one year of grace. 
that says you still have time. You have time to turn the course of action. As much as you have been involved in those actions, as much as you have been entertaining the negativity, holding on to behavior that doesn't glorify God, the vine dresser Jesus, our advocate says there is grace, there is time, but don't waste the time, but redeem this time. Hallelujah. So the sense of urgency that the audience had at that time was an immediate thing. And we have that same sense of urgency, but recognize that there is time. A lot of, uh, a lot of my experience in dealing with that, uh, that type of behavior that is toxic, that is negative, that is leading down that, word of, word, excuse me, that road of destruction, I feel like it's never ending. I feel like sometimes I can't quite get myself out of that rut. So what's the point of trying to do something different? Because this is how it's always been. But in this parable, it says it doesn't have to be that way, that you have a year. The vine dresser says, give it another year. And in that year, you need to redeem that time. This is not a time or a season that's supposed to be passive, that you kind of wait and hope that things change. But this is a hope that requires action. This is a year of allowing the vine dresser to prune you, to dig around, to uproot. That when he says, give it another year, he doesn't say, just give it another year and we'll just kind of wait and see. He says, no, give it another year and let me dig around. So for us today, think about what is being uprooted in your life and that hurts a little bit. Things that you thought served you well needs to be uprooted for what God wants to produce in your life. That uprooting doesn't feel very comfortable because here's the thing, you buried those things and you thought you needed them. But the vine dresser is coming to uproot them. He's coming to shake up and unsettle some things because it's not serving you, it's hindering you from producing fruit. So not only is the vine dresser, not only is Jesus digging things Digging things up and going into areas that we thought were buried, he's also fertilizing. Hallelujah. So Jesus doesn't leave you just without those things that you thought served you well, but don't. He's also giving you the things that will serve you well so that you can produce the fruit that he desires to produce in your life. So he's uprooting those things that don't serve you well, those toxic behaviors that we keep doing because we are just so used to doing it. It's just a habit. It's a part of our life. It's a part of our identity. We think that we need it. We, we buried it because we thought it was necessary. So he's uprooting those things, but he's also fertilizing. What is fertilizer? He's adding in the nutrients and things necessary for you to grow. And he's He's, he's throwing it on top of you over and over again. Pastor uh, Mike Todd has this sermon series of saying that I'm not buried, I'm planted. That I know a lot of things are coming upon you and you may think that it's overwhelming, but God is just trying to fertilize you. He's just trying to put things in your life that will allow you to produce the fruit that he desires to produce in your life. He's adding to you people that want to pour into your life. He's adding you opportunities to grow in him, whether it's through life groups, whether it's through Wednesday night life groups, whether it's through the online virtual life groups, whether it's friends and coworkers, people trying to encourage you and the word of God. He's putting things around you so that this time is not a time that passively goes by, but this time is a time that you redeem. 
I thank you, Lord, for another year. I thank you, Lord, for your digging. I thank you, Lord, for the soil to help me grow. And not just me, but I need you to speak to yourself or speak to a neighbor. Tell someone that God has given me another time and more time for my dreams, for my visions, for my talents. Don't cut the dream down just yet. Don't cut the vision down just yet. Don't cut yourself out just yet. But he says, give it another year. Dig around and uproot what is not of God and pour on that vision, pour on that dream, the things of God. Pour on worship, pour on prayer, pour on the word, pour on praise. Don't cut it down just yet. But you have to change the course of action. And I'm getting ready uh, to, to, to close here. This parable does not end neatly, but it ends with a decision that we all have to sit with and make. It's open-ended. The outcome of what happens to the fig tree, we don't know. All we know is that it has time and opportunity. Hallelujah. 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 So what is the response that you'll have today? Are you going to redeem the time that God has given you and receive the uprooting for what it is? I know sometimes it feels difficult. It feels painful. It feels like the dust will never settle. I say that all the time at work, like, oh my goodness, when the dust settles, I'm gonna be able to do this. When the dust settles, like there's so much going on, it's chaotic, we have all these different changes since I work in government, we are changes in our government, so that means changes in my job. And I'm like, oh, I need the dust to settle. But guys, like the dust can't settle because I'm uprooting things. He's uprooting things and we have to have a response to that uprooting. Other than that, it's a waste of nutrients. But we also know that God is not wasting his nutrients. You are worthy of it. So now it's time for you to respond to it. What will that response be? Again, repentance is not something that is leading, that, that comes from condemnation. We say it often that, that condemnation leads to guilt and shame. There's no condemnation to those of us who are in Christ Jesus. Repentance comes from conviction of the Holy Spirit, recognizing that there's something that I'm doing that is leading me down a path that is opposite of what God's will is for me. So repentance literally means I'm going to turn to those things that are of God, receive that uprooting and receive the nutrients and the soil that he's giving me so that I can move forward and produce the fruit that he would have for me. The heart of this parable is repentance. Repentance at the time of them hearing it was repent or perish. Repentance at the time of this, uh, 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 this modern age is the same thing, repent or perish. We don't want those dreams to die. We don't want those visions to die. I don't want you to die. I want you to live life and that more abundantly because that's what he came here for. Short parable, so short sermon for me. I want us to take this time that if you feel like there are behaviors, there are actions, there are things that are going on in your life that you need to turn away from. I ask that you join me at the altar. Our community at Revival Tabernacle aims to reach our city and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus. Thank you for your support. If you want to further connect with us, you can find us online at www.revivaltab.com. 
www.thepeopleshow.org.